Welcome to another episode of Focused on Christ, where we are passionate about exalting Christ and equipping the church. I'm Mike Crump here with Pastor Nathan Smith, who at the time of this airing is actually in Israel with a group of our people from church. Yes. How are you doing this? This is amazing. This is a time warp. We are going (laughs) forward in time, back in time. No, this is good planning on your part. Thank okay. you, Mike. Yeah, no problem. Yes. So, so the question is, why take a group to Israel? I mean, what what's the purpose of a trip like that? Well, first of all, I do want to say this: that Saint Jerome, who was one of the early Christian fathers, who wrote the Latin Vulgate, um, okay. which the Catholic Church uses even to today, but it's a faithful rendering mm. of the Bible in Latin. And he told people, he said, "I love Israel." He said, "But you are no nearer to God in Israel." than worshiping him in your own home. Mm. And so that was actually a, a good reminder that you don't have to go on a pilgrimage to yeah. to come in contact with our faith, to know God better. You can enjoy God and understand him through his word, through the church, the people of God, wherever you're at. Mm. Now, that being said, yeah. there is still beautiful uh, things to be learned by going to the place because it, it, it does help to put... Uh, flesh and blood, if you will, or rock and grass, yeah. <laughs> uh, on understanding the geography and the lay of the land of Israel. I love taking people there because I get to know the people, mm. people in our church, some people who come who are not a part of our church, but um, I get to know them. I get to see kind of the light bulbs come on when they see yeah. different things happen. There's also a direct challenge that they will take what they've learned come back and edify the church with what they've learned Amen. and continue to encourage the believers. So I feel like it's an opportunity to invest in God's people and also empower them to hopefully be a blessing to others. I know that uh, I went with you a few years ago, and it, it truly was a remarkable experience because the Scripture just becomes more alive in the yes. sense of, I think you put it, you've put this several and, and for several different things, but it's like looking at a black and white TV, and then you move you move immediately to <laughs> HD because all of a sudden it's like, oh uh-huh. man, it comes alive. It's more in depth, and so it's it's helpful. Or even in our current generation, it's going from um, uh, silent pictures to <laughs> HD, 3D, 8K, <laughs> you know, with surround sound, and it just helped things come alive. Oh yeah. And the important thing is, you still get the same message yes. if you never get to That's Israel. Right. You get the same core message. But what going does, just like any study, if you learn Greek or Hebrew, I mean, anything that adds added dimension to God's Word just gives you a greater sense of its reality, of its historicity, its archaeology, and I do believe helps us communicate it more effectively. I agree. I agree. Well, speaking of Israel, today we are going to look at a significant point in the life of the nation. Uh, This is found in Numbers 14. It happened at Kadesh Barnea in the wilderness of Paran. Where exactly is are we in this story, Nathan? In, in the narrative of Scripture, we're looking at the people of Israel. They have come out of Egypt. They have gone to Sinai. Now they are moving forward to Canaan. And where is this location for people? So we are looking at a desert region that would be in the southern part of modern-day Israel. And some of the places we don't know exactly. Yeah. We know we're talking approximately south um, southeast of the Dead Sea, uh, but there's a lot of, again, we yeah. just don't know exactly. That being said, there is an ancient highway that runs north to south called the King's Highway, and a modern highway is built upon it. It's, it's a highway that's run that mm. region uh, for millennia. Wow. And what 
the Israelite wanderings show us that in part they were following that highway all the way up to the point where they eventually make an ingress into Canaan via Jericho, which is right where the King's Highway runs. Gotcha. So there are some places that we know, there, there are some historical references we can see. Some of the places we just have to be honest and say we don't know. Okay. So the, they're there, but the, we do know that they are on the edge of Canaan. They're ready to go into the land. God has brought them to this point. He has provided for them in the wilderness as they've been heading there. And so they stop and they send spies into Canaan to see what's going on. And what do they find? From the side that they are on, so you're looking from what is modern-day Jordan into Israel, you can actually stand on the escarpments overlooking the Jordan Valley and look across the the Jordan Valley over to Israel on the other side. And you can see a lot. They would have been able to see some of the scattered fortress cities on the other side. Maybe even from a distance, they would have seen the people moving. Hmm. But they realized that they needed to scout out the land a little bit more, what lay beyond the hills of the escarpment on the other side. And so they send some spies over to see. And what did they find? They find actually a very fertile, a very lush territory uh, that's very, very different than where they're at Hmm. in um, uh, ancient Moab, ancient Ammon, uh, the land of the Ammonites and Moabites, current-day Jordan, which is very dry. Uh, they would have seen a land truly flowing with milk and honey. That is not an exaggeration. It has been said that the land of Israel encompasses almost every biome on planet Earth. Oh, wow. Um, To some degree, even snow. You have on the top of Mount Hermon, you have snow. (laughs) So almost every biome is represented, some biological grouping of, of plant life and animals represented in Israel. It's one of the most geographically and geologically diverse regions on the earth. So when the spies come back and they give a glowing report, they are not exaggerating. Uh, The spies report going over, they are looking to militarily analyze Mm -hmm. what's going on. They're exercising wisdom. The issue is, however, um, not what they saw, but their conclusion that what they saw was not defeatable, was was not conquerable. So they went in and they saw milk and honey just prosperous. I mean, the land is just beautiful. It's yes. ready. It's 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 good for living. Uh, they also find strong people. And in uh, Numbers 13, it says, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land and it goes on to list all the different types of people who are there. So, as you said, they saw that, yes, there are strong people there. And who are these descendants of Anak? Is there any <laughs> anything to... I, I'm going to give just a brief comment yeah. on, on that. The Anakim, the Nephilim, we understand them to be probably of the same people, at least in reference here. And this is a reference back to Genesis 6, where in Jewish mythology that these were the descendants of, um, frankly, demonic entities that had corrupted... Um, their, their status uh, as angelic beings and came and had offspring with earthly women. So there's a lot of mythology, and Christians unfortunately get drawn into this discussion big time. Mm-hmm. There is a great video by Peter Gentry on YouTube. It's for free, uh, 21, 22 minutes long. It's called Who Are the Nephilim? Um, I think it's put out by Southern Seminary. 
excellent video, really good biblical treatment yeah. of this issue. The bottom line for the context, however, of the story is that they're looking at them going, there's no way we can fight these people. Yeah. They're way beyond our scope of power. Ironically, though, they just came out of Egypt. <laughs> now, Egypt historically was probably at the zenith yeah. of its power when the Exodus happened. So we're talking large armies, huge constructs of cities and walls, and all types of military prowess. So to come to Canaan and then to, especially after God did these remarkable plagues yeah. and overcame with great power and authority the Egyptians, to come to Canaan and then say God can't take care of these people was really just a height of disbelief, and it shows how quickly they slid into fear and doubting God. Yeah. And that's that kind of gets to the question, that does get to the question we want to ask. Our key question today is, why did the people of Israel have to wander in the wilderness? And we see it comes out of their response to seeing what they saw in Canaan. First you had Joshua and Caleb come, and they're like, hey, let's do this, let's occupy the land, it is good for us, we can overcome it. Everyone else, we're not able to do this, they're stronger than we are. And as you say, I mean, it's a short-sightedness because God just saved them from a Mm -hmm. major power. And so was God punishing them through because of the wanderings, was he punishing them just because they're scared? They're, they are afraid, yeah. and so that is a human response for what they're seeing. But what they, what it ultimately is, is, is a disbelief in who God said He was, mm. um, a disbelief in God's character that I'm going to be with you, yeah. uh, a disbelief in God's promise that He's going to keep His promise. Yeah. It is a cascading disbelief that really doubts the very person of God. And even though, even though they were all of the generation that had seen Him part the Red Sea, and bring the plagues, yeah. and just recently descend on fire and power <laughs> upon Mount Sinai. I'm sorry, I'm getting passionate. Because, no, no, it's true, Because though. it shows yeah. the, the depth of their disbelief. Yeah. It's also convicting, because I think, Mike, m- maybe you would have been a Joshua or a Caleb, but for the most part... Probably not. We as mankind continually live where the other ten spies were, yeah. in fear, and that fear keeping us captive in the desert instead of really entering into the blessings that God has freely given us through Christ. And to that, and and this is what I found so interesting, and I want to read this section because it, it does get to the heart of the issue. And in Numbers 14, their response, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or that we would have died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Willing rebellion to enter back into slavery because they doubted the heart of God. Yeah. Yep. They saw God mishandling their life. And they began accusing him of mishandling it, mis, uh, accusing him of mishandling leadership and uh, questioning Moses. And now, you know what? Let's, let's reverse the redemption. Let's reverse redemption here. God, yeah, you may have saved us, but let's just go back. Yeah, we'd rather go back into slavery. It's not... Their cry of fear is not 
fear God help us. Mm-hmm. It's fear that then turns into arrogance. Yes. It is an arrogance of we know better, just take us back. Yes. God, you are not fulfilling. It's, it's an accusation against the Lord and his character. Yeah. What is, and I think this is an important distinction, what is the difference between this kind of cry that we see here with Israel and a true biblical lament that we see in the Scriptures? Because we see a crying out to God in very real, raw way, especially in the Psalms we see this. In Jeremiah mm-hmm. we see this. We see what is the difference between that kind of lament and what we just read with Israel? Another resource I would I would point people to is there's a, there's a book called uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy yeah. by Mark Vrogop. Uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. You can find it on Amazon. Um, I, I know this pastor, he's, he's a sweet man, mm. and he defines it in his book. Uh, lament is a prayer in pain mm. that leads to trust. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. So the difference between complaining to God is just complain, 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 never seeking the Lord. Yeah. Lament is, God, why? What? Help me. Crying out in pain. But as they respond and seek God, it leads to a trust in even though God may not explain mm. the reasons for the lament, it's a willingness to say, God, I don't understand. Yeah. I do struggle, but I'm going to trust you with it. Yeah. So God does not condemn the fear or the lament or even the worry per se. Mm-hmm. What he condemns is them acting out on it yeah. uh, and not trusting him instead. And he does react very strongly towards them in in Numbers 14. He basically says, Moses, I'm going to destroy the people, and I'm going to start afresh with you. Mm. Um, And so he speaks of wiping them out, starting new with Moses, and he does so out of great... of, of his wrath, his justice that sees them speaking against his name. And so that's sometimes hard for us to really comprehend because that seems, well, can he show a little bit? But to defame the Almighty is to place yourself under his wrath. People really struggle with this portion because it seems like God is very angry, capricious, and if Moses hadn't been there, then God would have destroyed them, and that Moses changed God's mind. Yes. That's another thing that comes into this. Yes. Well, let's back up for just a moment okay. and say that God in his sovereignty placed Moses in that role mm. because he knew that an intercessor was required in order to justify and to take care of his wrath. Mm. In other words, to divert his wrath. So God God who knows everything and is sovereign over everything, it's not that his mind was changed by Moses. But God already set up the structure so that a mediator, an intercessor, would be in place mm. so that when the judgment did come of the people's own free will, yep. but there was already a mediator in place to divert that wrath and still show grace. Mm. And of course, that, again, prefigures Christ, Amen. who God, recognizing that his wrath must be satisfied, set in place a mediator that would then divert and take care of that wrath so that the people could experience grace. And the book of Hebrews, that's what Jesus is. Jesus is seen as the better Moses, the better Abraham, the better David, the better Joshua, always pointing towards uh, the fulfillment in Christ. Amen. And I love what Moses 
says, because Moses goes to the very character of God that God had revealed to him on the mountain. As God passed by and Moses got a glimpse of his back, God declares who he is, and he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and on and on. He's declaring these things, and Moses brings these to the Lord as, God, this is who you are. Now, again, God didn't forget no. that's who he was. That That is who he is. But in this, we do see that beautiful intercessor stepping in and declaring, yes, Lord, you are this kind of God, therefore, show mercy. You, you almost could kind of play out a little bit of a paraphrase, and this is not Scripture, but the Father, recognizing his holy character, who will satisfy my wrath? Mm. And then Jesus saying, uh, I will satisfy your wrath, because according to your good pleasure and good will, Father, mm. you sent me to do just that. Amen. And who is going to empower the people then to walk in that? And the Holy Spirit pipes up and says, I will, mm. you, Father, you, Son, who sent me to into your people to seal them and to secure them until they can be fully united with the Father. Amen. So we see the relationships between members of the Trinity executing God's justice and holiness, but also his, uh, his, his grace and his mercy. And so even this, this little picture of Moses and God is, again, prefiguring a Trinitarian reality mm. that is fulfilled at cross uh, with Christ and the Father. Awesome. I love that. And God does show mercy. He does end up taking out justice, if you will, on those who rejected and who rebelled against him, but he doesn't do it in the way he originally said. He sends them into the desert to wander for 40 years till the generation dies off, except for Joshua and Caleb, and they, the new generation rises up, and they will be the ones to go and enjoy the fruits of Canaan. The historical event reminds us that there will be justice. Mm -hmm. There will be consequence for those who reject God. There will be um, a, a consequence uh, for, for violating God's holiness. But those who have put their trust in Yahweh, in this case, yeah. Joshua and Caleb, get to enjoy the blessings of Canaan and enter all the way into the land of Canaan. So once again, we have a theological picture where those who've trusted in Christ enter in and enjoy the blessings of the eternal Canaan, the yeah. New Jerusalem heaven itself. Those who rejected and disbelieve God that Christ is the only Savior will perish in the wilderness or will enter into eternal judgment in hell. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we were to take something for us today, it is this reminder that you just spoke of, that there is a means of salvation to enter into his rest, to enter into the land that is given to us in Christ, and that is through our intercessor, through the sacrifice of Jesus, trusting in him. And I think some of that comes, um, not some of it, but part of that is the repentance. The people of Israel did not come to God in crying out in repentance, they came in accusation. Yes. And so when we repent, we confess our sins before the Lord, and we say, we are in desperate need of you. Help us. Trusting in Christ, we find that rest. And uh, surely that's what the people eventually found as they came into the land after 
We'll get into all that with Joshua and uh, the, the conquest of the land. But in the meantime, they wander and they wait. And if anybody wants to prove out these dot connections that we're making, look at Hebrews 3 and 4, mm. as the Scriptures actually make these connections, where it says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 17, "...and with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, mm. but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter Canaan because of unbelief. Mm. So their unbelief kept them outside of blessing, whereas Joshua and Caleb's belief, that was the means by which God brought them into blessing. Amen. It is by faith. By faith. Well, Nathan, again, thank you. Um, I'm looking forward to the many other discussions we're going to have here in the Old Testament. I pray that uh, those who are listening are encouraged in their faith in this. We pray that you will join us next time as we continue our look at Numbers. We're actually going to be looking at the story of Balaam. And uh, here's a little hint. It's more than just a talking donkey. That's that's kind of part of it, but that's a small <laughs> part of it. So we're going to be looking at some of that here in coming episodes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, share with a friend, give us a five-star rating. And for more details on Focused on Christ, visit FocusedOnChrist.com. Thank you.